Being from the South, I know a thing or two about how bugs can ruin a great outdoor experience. It's crazy how something so small can affect some of the potentially greatest experiences of your life. And that's why today's show is brought to you in part by Sawyer. You might know them as the water filter company. I actually have a couple Sawyer filters, but they make a lot of other great products too, including their insect repellent. And uh, j just some points about what it is. It's great for the whole family. It's actually safe to use on infants and those who are pregnant because they don't use DEET, the active ingredient. They use something better called picaridin. It actually lasts longer. It lasts up to 12 hours. Pretty incredible. And it doesn't damage any of your gear. So it's insect repellent specifically made for families who are also outdoorsy because it won't ruin any of that high dollar gear that you've bought to be out there. And it does a fantastic job of protecting you and your family from those vector-borne illnesses that are carried by insects. I know for me, I'm always carrying some insect repellent because I've had mosquitoes specifically ruin some pretty incredible backpacking experiences. Don't let it happen to you. Use Sawyer's 20% Picaridin insect repellents. Find out more about that at sawyer.com. Play safe, travel safely, Sawyer. They keep you outdoors. But, you know, the biggest difference is, and that I was told this over and over again by the climbers, biggest difference between those times and now uh, is the weather forecasting. Because back then, the, the forecasting was kind of um, dated and inaccurate. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. So today's episode is about climbing 8,000 meter peaks in the wintertime. And uh, the 8,000ers are the biggest mountains in the world. There's only 14 of them. They're all in the Himalayas. And it was crazy enough to climb them in the first place, in my opinion. Uh, it's even crazier to do them in the wintertime. And so Bernadette wrote a, an entire book going into the history, uh, traveling all over the world, doing interviews, um, with the people who have done them, with their family members, and just getting the story behind why people did this and what happened, how did it go about. And as you'll hear, uh, the the challenge is not yet complete. So if there's any aspiring mountaineers now out there, you can really make a name for yourself by going after one of these peaks in the winter. So uh, a little bit more about Bernadette. She joined us today from Banff. And uh, yeah, she's... Uh, just incredible. She spent 20 years volunteering at the Banff Mountain Film Festival. She's the founder of the Banff Center for Mountain Culture. And if you don't know where Banff is, it's in Alberta, Canada, and it's a beautiful mountain town in the Canadian Rocky Mountains. I encourage you to look it up. Uh, one of my favorite places in the, in the world. Um, but that is just a snippet of Bernadette's um, kind of accolade. She's written about a dozen or so books now, uh, all about mountaineering and she has received uh, just tons of awards from the American Alpine Club, uh, the Explorers Club, and just many, many more. But thank you again, Bernadette, for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All 
All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely, and uh, today we're talking to Bernadette McDonald. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for joining. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about your book. Folks heard a little bit about you in the show's intro, but I'd, I'd love to... So we know we're going to be talking about your book, Winter 8000, um, talking about the 8,000-meter peaks all around the, you know, the the world that folks are climbing in the wintertime. But I, I would love to go all the way back, if you don't mind, and hear about, you know, where did you grew up, grow up? I know you have a career in the outdoors and in mountaineering uh, and writing about it. You know, where did this start for you? Have you always been into this or did you grow up somewhere far from that world? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I grew up definitely far from that world. I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan. And uh, yeah, it was pretty flat, actually. Um, the first the first time I ever saw the mountains was when I was 11 years old. Uh, we went on a family winter vacation. <laughs> Here comes the winter theme. But being a farm, uh, that's when my dad had time off. So that's when we went on our trips. And our, this particular trip was to British Columbia. And of course, we we traveled through the Rocky Mountains and the Selkirk Mountains. And uh, I can honestly say that I knew immediately that the mountains spoke to me. It's where I wanted to spend my life. I had no clue how that was going to happen. But um, it was just a landscape that really resonated for me. But in the meantime, I had to go back to the farm. What about it do you think drew you in so young and so immediately? Was it just the d distinction between there and home? You know, what were you feeling, you think, at 11 years old? You know, I, I, remember, I remember feeling, um, sounds ridiculous, but I remember feeling cozy because in Saskatchewan, I mean, where, where we lived was really quite flat. And, um, you know, there was a lot of space and I mean, it's beautiful in its own way. Um, it, it's, you, you feel kind of exposed, I guess, in a way, because there's, it's just you on this flat landscape and, you know, all the elements are, you know, if there are elements such as wind or snow or sleet or whatever, you know, has full access to you. And when, when I first, you know, spent some time walking around and just, you know, the first night sleeping in the mountains, it felt, you know, it was in the bottom of a deep valley. There were big peaks surrounding. It was actually in the town of Banff, uh, which I eventually moved mm. to. But um, yeah, it just it felt it felt contained and cozy and and just right. Yeah, what what a place to fall in love with the mountains. First of all, I mean, does it get better than the Canadian Rockies? I mean, and especially Banff of all places. Between 11 years old and when you eventually made it back out, were you, were you able to see it very often before you were out on your own? Um, you know, my I had uh, relatives in British Columbia, so we would come visit them periodically. And then when I was uh, 16, I um, enrolled in university at um, Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington. And... Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go into the Cascades and learned how to ski and, and um, you know, hike and that kind of thing. So I guess from the age of 16, I, I started to have the opportunity to actually go into the mountains and do stuff, not just sort of drive through them and, and sort of wonder what it would be like. 
Um, is, is there this pull out west in Canada like it is in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I just feel that there's this like you know go west kind of feeling as you as you start coming of age. Is that similar in Canada? Oh, it certainly is, particularly for uh, people who are are from uh, what I would call central Canada, let's say uh, Ontario or Quebec. Now, Saskatchewan is considered Western Canada, but it, it, I think for someone from the prairies, it's more about, you know, getting out to the mountains um, because we're already from the West. But like my husband is from Ontario. And when he came West, he was 18 and yeah, that was a real sort of migratory thing. You know, you've got to go out west and, you know, experience, you know, the wildness, the, you know, just skiing and, I don't know, partying, I suppose, is probably what he did. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I know for uh, for years, uh, you volunteered with the Banff Mountain Film Festival and eventually uh, started the Mountain Culture Division at the Banff Center uh, can you talk about your involvement, how you got involved with the film festival and what, what that experience was like over, over two decades? Well, I was working at the time at the BAMF Center, which is a cultural institution, uh, you know, an advanced learning institution. Um, and I was working in the music department because actually that's what I was trained to be, was a musician. So I was working in the music department, but at the at this time I was already married um, to my husband, who was a national park warden. And um, we did actually a lot of stuff in the mountains. We, we, we hiked, we climbed, we paddled, um, we did uh, horse trips, you know, for 17 and 24 days at a time with, you know, two, two riding horses and two pack horses. So we were pretty, um, pretty connected with the mountain landscape and the mountain lifestyle. So while I was happy to work in the music department at the BAM Center, uh, I also knew about the film festival because we would attend once a year. And I just sort of wandered over one day and asked if they needed any volunteers. And of course, <laughs> what what festival doesn't? And yeah, that just sort of morphed into, uh, you know, a career with the festival. And as sometimes happens, what you're trained to do becomes your more your hobby and what you were never trained to do becomes your profession. And that's what happened to me. So I... Within a couple of years, I was the director of the festival, and then, you know, things started to evolve. We started the book festival and the world tour, and all that stuff just grew as time went on, and eventually it became the Center for Mountain Culture. Music and, and film you were getting involved in. When did writing start to become part of your life? Well, writing was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was also unplanned. Um, writing was just part of my job really as, um, you know, working with the festival, there was just a lot of stuff that had to be written, you know, for promotional purposes, for all kinds of reasons. But, uh, and then in, in the year 2000, we, we wanted to celebrate 25 years of the film festival and did this huge event. Uh, it was called Banff Mountain Summit where we invited, I think it was 32 of the most, you know, famous uh, speakers and guests that had been to the festival in the previous 25 years to all show up at once and um, and and do lectures on certain topics that amazingly uh, they accepted from me. Um, but part of our big plan for that year was to do a book. Uh, National Geographic was one of the partners of the festival, 
at the time, and they had a book division, quite a new book division, and they were keen to do this uh, book, which was a series of essays by these 32 famous uh, mountain personalities. I mean, everything, everybody from Sir Edmund Hillary to Reinhold Messner, Todd Skinner, um, Jack Tattle, Lynn Hill. I mean, everybody was in that book. And my job was to edit those pieces and also to uh, put the whole thing together and write the history of the festival. So that was the first sort of writing experience, which, you know, now when I think back on it, it was kind of jumping into a really big fire. Big fire in a good way. Turned over and maybe an untapped uh, talent maybe you didn't know you had. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, well, I mean, obviously I read a lot. I mean, you know, you, you, you do, mm-hmm. or I did. Um, but, you know, I think you all probably some talent, but I suspect it was more just um, hard work. You know, I, I hear that a lot about writing. You know, there's there's people dealing with writing blo- writer's block and, um, you know, maybe outlining. And I heard an art, uh, author say recently, you know, a lot, of, a lot of authors don't realize or aspiring authors don't realize. A lot of times it just comes down to sitting down and writing, just writing and writing and writing to get it out because <laughs> you, you kind of, a lot of people don't enjoy that part of it. And that becomes so much of what you're actually doing. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's uh, maybe you experienced that too. Maybe not. Absolutely. The, um, the, the you're right. I mean, the most important thing is to is to just start. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're writing nonfiction, you have to do a whole lot of uh, research. So that's, I suppose, the real beginning. But um, once you're once you're well into the research, you have to start writing. And the first draft, I think, is just miserable. It's just a, a really tough um, job to do, and it's always bad. At least in my case, um, you know, it doesn't read well. It's disjointed, and this, that, and the other thing. But you know, you get those first fifty thousand, seventy thousand, whatever words down, and um, yeah, you start to feel a little more confident, and you start to see a shape and um, a direction. Was there ever a time that you made a decision to gravitate towards writing instead of film, being involved with the film festival for so long? Yeah, I absolutely. What happened was, um, I think it was, well, I guess it must have been in my 19th year with the, uh, with the festival. And I was already pretty involved with writing. I mean, I had edited several books and, you know, written parts of them and I had, written biographies I guess I had written one biography of Elizabeth Hawley and then I was in the middle of writing uh, the the story of um, Charlie Dr. Charles Houston um, American mountaineer and uh, high altitude doctor Um, and then I had was offered a contract from a really you know important publishing house in England to write the biography of Tomasz Humar the Slovenian climber and it so basically I had two books on the go plus a very full-time job. And I don't know, it just it just seemed to me that 20 years I was I was approaching 20 years with the festival and maybe it was time for some new blood, some younger blood, and I had these great writing opportunities and I was really loving it. So, you know, maybe it's just time for the next chapter. Oh man, that's so exciting, you know, and, and, and uh, I think you would 
probably say it was a good direction to go for you because you ended up, you know, so far at 11 books in a surrounding story, you know, about stories in the mountaineering world. You know, I, I mean, has it, has it been a direction you've been happy with? I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. I mean, it was, it was really difficult to leave the festival. Um, you know, that was an exciting job. I had just the most amazing team of people that I worked with and we were tight. We were really close, um, friends as well as colleagues. And that was, that was sort of heartbreaking actually to, to leave them. But I mean, it's a small town. We, you know, we see each other socialize and go skiing and stuff. Um, that was really hard to do. And, you know, writing, although parts of writing are, you know, social because you, when you're doing the research and so on, but a lot of it is by yourself. And that was a bit of an adjustment, but overall, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. I think it was the right thing to do for the festival too, because, you know, um, a, a creative um, event such as a festival or any kind of an arts organization, I think it does actually benefit when when the leadership at the top, um, you know, has some new blood from time to time, just new ideas, new approaches. And I really, I'm, I'm glad that that happened for the festival because I, I think it was time. Well, it's still, you know, obviously a, a festival that highly acclaimed. It's definitely something if you are able to, to premiere a film there for sure. So, you know, someone's doing something right. Cause it, I, I hear mm. about it every year. And, uh, even this year, you know, I know it was having to be virtual, but, um, I know. Yeah, I'm sure I, I know, uh, so many festivals, so many great things were pushed virtual and, you know, it's sad, but sometimes that opens it up to a crowd that couldn't see it before. Yeah. Well, who knows? Hey, eh? who knows what's, what's going to happen with this virtual festival? I mean, where I've got my fingers crossed like crazy that it, it goes well and I know I've seen the program and it's good. It's a really good program. So, well, tell us about your, your newest project, your newest book, Winter 8000. It just, if someone isn't familiar with the concept of an 8,000 meter peak or just kind of the premise of the book, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so um, there are 14 8,000 meter peaks in the world, they are all in. Uh, Pakistan and uh, Nepal and Tibet um, and they're in the two mountain ranges the Himalaya and the Karakoram all of the 8,000 meter peaks uh, had been climbed before any of them had been climbed in winter I mean basically nobody even considered going to them in winter because the conditions in the other seasons the spring the fall season and in the Karakoram the summer were plenty difficult and, and uh, horrendous enough to uh, provide enough challenge for most climbers. Um, but the Polish alpinists uh, who made a huge name for themselves in, in the highest mountains on earth were, were kind of behind the eight ball compared to most other countries because while all the 8,000 meter peaks had been climbed for the first time, the Polish climbers were kind of stuck at home just because of the uh, the communist regime that that uh, followed the Second World War. So it was a frustrating time for them because they were very skilled, very strong, highly trained climbers, and they you know they wanted to get out there in the in the in the big mountains. So when uh, things loosened up a bit uh, in Poland and they were they were able to start climbing abroad. This was one of the things that they 
considered doing as uh, something new, something different, something that uh, would help them to make a name for themselves in in the uh, in the high mountains. First of all, they went to uh, Afghanistan to the Hindu Kush, and you know climbed in the winter up to say 7,000 uh, and higher meters. And then it was off to the Himalaya. So they were really the ones that started the, the whole concept of winter uh, climbing at high altitude. And it was a it was kind of a specialized uh, way of climbing. It had had to do with you know colder temperatures, higher winds, long nights, short days, you know all the things that you think of about winter, but just um, accentuated incredibly because of the uh, high altitude. Yeah, so so every aspect of mountaineering just harder. That's <laughs> what it sounds like. <laughs> That's right. Well. One of the Polish climbers who actually wasn't a winter specialist at all referred to it as the art of suffering. Mountaineering can be suffering as it is. So that is just magnified. So, so let me ask you this. What, what drew you to this story and going back to, you know, why people were climbing 8,000 meter peaks in the winter or how that idea started? How did, how did you hear about the story and what drew you into it? Well, it actually, for me, it started, uh, um, I think it was in 1994. Anyway, long time ago. I was in Poland uh, at a party. Um, it was a post-festival party. And the reason I was there is that I'd helped organize the festival. And at this gathering, um, it was a you know bunch of climbers, primarily, uh, at the local clubhouse in Katowice, Poland. And it, that's when I first... Um, learned about this sort of specialty, this this winter high altitude climbing specialty, because, well, the room was full of them. Basically, um, they were famous climbers in their in their own right, just because of their high altitude experience. But I had not realized up to that point how this group of people had um, specialized in winter and how they had, uh, you know, set themselves apart from other high altitude climbers by focusing on winter. And one of the people at the party was. Uh, a fellow named Andrzej Zavada, his last name Zavada. And he was the mastermind uh, of all this stuff. He was an expedition leader, very well respected, had had uh, first come up with the idea of taking climbers to the high mountains in winter. And I just, I was, uh, I was intrigued, um, first of all, by him by his ability to mobilize a group of people to go and suffer like that. And, um, and I was intrigued with the, with the, the climbers who actually were, were up to it and keen to do it. You know, what, what were their reasons for it? Um, was it, you know, were they masochists? Were they, were they just looking for extra challenge? Uh, and, and there were all kinds of reasons, but I, I just became really fascinated by this group of people uh, and as I said, it, the whole concept started in Poland. And then as I actually started researching uh, winter climbing at high altitude, I realized there were people from all over the world. So, so what do you think, you know, is it, is it just that frustration you were talking about with uh, being under a communist regime that, that led to this kind of, kind of groundswell of talent coming out of Poland, of drive coming out of Poland to, to climb these peaks in winter, or do you see it was just an opportunity to do something that hadn't been done by this one climber, and then that climber mobilizing a group to essentially climb these peaks um, in a way that hasn't been done before? 
I think it's a combination. Um, winter climbing uh, in Poland, uh, the, the mountain range in Poland is the Tatras, and it forms the boundary with um, Slovakia. Um, winter climbing is super popular um, in both countries. And again, I mean, I tried to, to find out why. Why? I mean, now, of course, winter climbing, ice climbing, technical ice climbing is, is super popular everywhere. But back then, you know, it was, it was not that at all. It was just winter mountaineering. And uh, what I learned was that, again, going back to the, to the restrictions that they were living under, they could not travel to the Alps and, and do alpine climbs on, you know, glacial ice. Um, they didn't have that opportunity in those years. So they perfected their, their sort of ice climbing techniques by climbing in winter. Um, you know, you, the, the, the mountains in, in Poland aren't high, as high as the Alps, but in winter they're, they're pretty severe. And so it was, um, yeah, it was something that they could do that approximated, uh, climbing in the higher mountains. And uh, as they got better at it and then became really good at it, of course, the the visionary of the group, Andrzej Zavada, realized, aha, he was an ambitious man. Um, this is a way for Polish climbers to set themselves apart from the rest of uh, mountaineering. And obviously, when you, when you find a, a niche like that or, or kind of a a way to do things differently that might bring you some some attention and and creates this, um, yeah, this honor, this this thing you can be proud of. You start getting the idea to try to do them all. Did the, the team, the Polish team, start to want to do more and more? Was that the goal, or or what was the goal of of their mission? You know, I don't think initially it was the goal was to do them all, but certainly the goal was to do a lot of them. And um, you know, once they had so the very first one that they tried was Lhotse, uh, the first 8,000ers. They did not reach the summit, but they did break the 8,000-meter barrier. Um, and that was, you know, in some ways it was a failure, obviously. But in another way, it was, was, was mind-blowing because they realized they could climb above 8,000 meters in the coldest season. And, uh, and it, you know, in storms, in, cold, in the cold temperatures, in the wind, um, and when they actually went back for their next attempt of an 8,000er, which was Everest, seemed a little overly ambitious, but they succeeded. So Everest uh, was the first 8,000-meter peak to be climbed in winter. That's right. Wow. Strangely enough. And, and was, I mean, is that just because it's Everest? Well, I suppose uh, Andrzej Zavada was uh, ambitious enough to think yeah, I mean, like let's go, just... go for the biggest one first. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. Wow. You know, when was this? What year was this? And, and what was kind of the response to the climbing and in, in mountaineering community? Was it, did it make waves? Was it quieter than, than expected? What, 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 how was it accepted? Oh, it made huge waves. Um, it was the winter of 79, 80. And, um, it was, you know, it, they, they, barely squeezed it in. In fact, they, <clears throat> they had to ask for a slight extension, um, a two day extension, uh, of their permit in order to, to, uh, pull it off. But yeah, there was a huge response all over the world, both from climbers and, and, and actually non-climbers. I mean, the Pope sent them a letter. Um, but, uh, there was a, 
there was all obviously interest in it because, uh, you know, Reinhold Messner actually disputed the ascent for a, a while, um, saying that since they had started, oh no, let me just think about what, what his reason was. There was some reason that he said that it, it wasn't, um, it didn't fit into the, the category, the, the proper category of winter because in Nepal at the time, the winter season ended at the end of January and this ascent took place in the middle of February. But later on, the, uh, the Nepalese authorities said, no, we, we recognize it. We authorize it. It is a winter ascent. So there was a, a lot of interest and it was, you know, kind of an astonishing uh, thing that they did. And the very next 8,000 or to be climbed was just uh, three years later and it was also by a Polish team. Wow. I didn't realize just how early that was, the, the, you know, 79 and 80, you know, obviously not pretty recent by all accounts, but also, I mean, on the cusp of, of a lot of technology then as well. So that had to just be nuts to so many people. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, because I don't want you to give too much of the book away, but but what what are some of the big differences with that you've seen with climbing uh, one of these mountains in the winter time. I know uh, we're all familiar with what it looks like to climb Everest. You know, we've seen pictures and kind of what's what people are outfitted with and oxygen tanks and big parkas and, and, and those snowsuits. What are there any major differences with climbing with climbing in the winter? Well, the, there are there are differences. Um, I think actually the biggest differences are between what it was like in 1979-80 and what it's like now. Huge differences. I mean, well, particularly for for teams that were coming out of Poland, because you know their 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 budgets were um, you know they weren't that big, and they didn't have easy access to really good technical equipment. So they were kind of making it up as they went. You know, they were they were going to local uh, boot makers and and asking them to to make boots that would that would withstand cold temperatures, and they had welding goggles um, instead of sunglasses. And, you know, they had cotton tents and stuff like this. It was, when you see the pictures, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that they actually pulled it off. And, and the two that went to the summit actually both came back and with not, not much frostbite, you know, all, all things considered. Um, but, you know, the biggest difference uh, is, and that I was told this over and over again by the climbers, biggest difference between those times and now uh, is the weather forecasting because back then the the forecasting was was just kind of um, uh, dated and inaccurate and now the forecasts are incredibly accurate and uh, you know very specific up to the hour they can determine whether or not there'll be a four hour break in the wind or you know a six hour break and when it'll start and and you know they can predict actually what the the wind speeds are and temperatures and all this stuff so you know when the climbers are at base camp and they're they're starting to consider a summit bid they can really target um, their movement up to a high camp so that they're poised you know at at a certain hour of a certain day knowing full well that they have a window of so many hours and that just didn't exist back in in the day Mm. So, so technology has gotten better all around from the gear to, to monitoring weather, um, to just expertise and learning from past generations. But even despite that, there is still, uh, frontiers to be climbed in the world of 8,000 meter peaks in the wintertime. There's, there's one left. 
K2. And it's not from lack of trying. That, yeah, exactly. So so what, what did you learn about about that mountain and maybe why it hasn't been climbed and what were some of the frustrations that teams met along the way um, specific to that one? Because the, the fact that it's, you know, this challenge has been started, you know, 40 years ago, uh, still isn't completely complete. That that has to be, you know, there have to be some mountaineers out there salivating at the chance. Yeah, there are, um, and there have been, and there will be, um, and there, some of them are the very best, uh, as particularly in winter uh, mountaineering at high altitude, but just in mountaineering in general at high altitude. For example, Denis Arupko, the Russian, who, um, who has been on two uh, K2 winter expeditions and has made a number of other uh, first winter ascents of 8,000ers, um, um, is, you know, just as a couple of weeks ago said he he would like to go back, even though last year he said he was, he was retiring from high altitude climbing, but it sounds like maybe not if, if he had a chance again at K2 in winter, but most of the people and most of the expeditions that went to K2 in winter were turned back by storms. I mean, it's um, obviously a K2 is a is a very difficult mountain in whatever season and so that adds to the the difficulty uh, of climbing it in winter too. But what most people told me was that it was just the weather, because where K2 is situated in the Karakoram, it's quite far north. Um, it's it's colder, and the winds are are incredibly strong. And they're they're basically um, they just they just wipe people, they wipe tents, entire camps off the mountain, and um, that's that's what they really struggle with is the wind. I can only imagine. I mean, do, do these expeditions uh, interest you personally? I, you know, I, I had a lot of researching you. You hear a lot about your work, but I don't hear a lot about what you like to do. Are are you a mountaineer yourself? Oh, I am so incredibly not interested in high altitude climbing in winter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Absolutely not. So, it, no. so, so, let me ask you this: Why, why did you write so extensively about about something you don't really have an interest in uh, in doing yourself? Well, I mean, I have a I have a, a very strong interest in mountaineering and mountaineering history. I mean, I've done some mountaineering just with my husband and with my friends and whatnot, and I like to rock climb. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, I just I think through all those years of working at the festival and getting to know a lot of mountaineers from different parts of the world and, you know, starting to maybe understand a little bit what makes them tick. Um, it interests me and I like history and I it just seems like a, a natural thing to to be drawn to and to write about. So with interviewing, I mean, it's just very fascinating, you know, that uh it's not the same, but like I'll go home and visit my mom, and she'll cook something for dinner that she has no interest in eating. And I'm like, "Why did you do that? You know what I mean? Like, why didn't you make something we all wanted together?" Um, but it's it's uh, you know it's just something she enjoys doing for you and for me. I mean, I guess when I look at this, I, I love interviewing folks like you and folks that do these things. And there's half of the half the interviews. It, it, it's sports that I'm like I have no interest in doing that myself. But obviously, the way the brain works and the way these people work is obviously very fascinating. Um, after interviewing so many of these athletes and, and, and talking to their families, uh, talking to their friends, talking to this community, what do you think was maybe some of the most common themes of these people who, 
who not only want to do these mountains, but do them in under such difficult circumstances? Was there any personality themes that start started to to become apparent? Yeah, um, yeah, there were you know quite a few, and of course it varies greatly. Um, some some of the uh, climbers who focused on winter were were and still continue to do it because it's um it does distinguish them from other climbers i mean it is it is a really hardcore thing to do and if you can do an eight a first ascent of an eight thousander in winter um it is no there's no question it is good for your career it is good for your resume and uh so there's a certain amount of that involved in some cases, and actually in most cases, what I heard was there's a certain beauty uh, to be in the high mountains in winter that you can't get in any other season simply because there's nobody else there. Um, as you know, as you know, your listeners, I'm sure know the the high mountains are getting crowded for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you know, guided trips and um, you know. It's, it's just getting very, very crowded in the summer or in the spring and fall seasons. And that's not the case in the winter. Now, there, there was an exception, particularly on Nanga Parbat, uh, for a couple of years because the race just, you know, grew in intensity and, and, and popularity, I suppose. And it got a little bit crowded there. But in uh, most cases, uh, it, you know, there's one expedition. Uh, and so you have this incredible landscape, you know, the most amazing mountains on earth and you're there with your team and that's it. And they all speak about that, you know, that loneliness, that, um, in, incredible feeling of being out there on the edge of the earth. Mm, you know, I, I've seen it on just a small scale, you know, everything from visiting a national park to just going for a hike somewhere, you know, in the wintertime, it can be that experience of isolation, that wilderness experience we're all looking for. And I'm sure, I'm sure on some of those peaks, it's just like being on the moon, <laughs> you know, yeah. just as harsh and just as. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard that expression wow. from them. It was like be, being on another planet. I can only imagine. I, I, you know, it's so far from the world we're used to. I, I, I'm sure that's exactly what it feels like. So, so, you know, you got to interview a lot of these families as well, uh, a lot of the children of, of climbers that were lost and, and spouses or partners. Did you, did you see any trends or any, any sort of, I don't know, any, any sort of similar um, personality traits with folks that are related to these climbers or uh, have to deal with them? Is it, is it just a certain type of person that works this way, is, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things that, um, be, became clear to me, and it's not just with the with the characters in this book, but in in a number of the of the characters that I've gotten to know over the years um, who do this kind of thing. They're you know they're amazing people. They're incredibly talented. They're very strong. They're well trained. Um, they're motivated and focused and all kinds of things. And sometimes what we forget about is that they almost always have a support system. Um, it, it varies, but there are almost always people around them who care about them and who, 
you know, support them uh, emotionally or intellectually or financially and, and, and help them become these amazing people that they are and do these, you know, horrendously difficult things that they do. And I guess one of the, if there is a, a common theme amongst the people that um, I talked to who were either spouses or in some cases children, is that they didn't always understand why their partners or their fathers <laughs> felt so compelled to leave them all the time and, and go to the mountains and, and, uh, and climb, particularly in the winter and, and particularly in the early years, they'd be going for like a couple of months at a time. Uh, they didn't always understand why, but they accepted it and supported them. And in some respects, I think it, it makes their stories even more sad than, than, than what you would expect because there wasn't really that much in it for them. And yet they, uh, they kind of became the collateral damage when things went wrong. Mm, that is very sad. Uh, why, why do you think these folks were so drawn? Why, you know, it's, I guess it goes down to, you know, why are we drawn to mountains in the first place? Why are we drawn to summiting them? Um, cause it does seem for a child, especially to lose a father or mother due to this, it, it I, I can imagine growing up and being resentful or angry and, um, not, not ever understanding. Yeah, it varies. It totally varies from, 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 uh, child to child. And I think a little bit too on, you know, what age it, it was they, they were when, when something like this happened, but you know, in some cases, they, I mean, one of Magic Berbecca's sons is, um, is a filmmaker and he, he, one of the things that he has done, and I'm sure it's, you know, it's probably partially therapy or therapeutic for him. He made a beautiful film about his father uh, and his family and, you know, just, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, uh, it's heartwarming to see it. And I think it was a, a good thing for, for his son to do. Uh, in other cases, yeah, they they the children move on to um, you know away from the mountains and they don't want to have anything to do with them because it just brings back bad memories. In some cases, the um, the partners, the or the, you know the ex partners are sort of try and nurture the memory of their partner who died in the mountains. They they start foundations to give back to the communities where the climbs took place. You know, they do that kind of thing that, you know, of course, they're done in the name of of their climbing partner who who died or was injured. And in other cases, they just move on into a different kind of life altogether. It just is, is so individual. So, so why to you is it important that these stories, um, these stories are told? I think it's part of the history of Himalayan climbing. Um, it's a. It's a it's a niche within a niche. Um, it's a <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, it's pretty specialized, but it is it's it's a it's a particular part of the story of Himalayan climbing. And um, I mean, quite honestly, I didn't realize it was as complex uh, when I first started the project, or I probably wouldn't have started it. But it <laughs> how is many a, times do we hear that on this show? Uh, I'd have known how yeah, hard it was. From the outset, I wouldn't have done it, but but it's over now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, no, it's not over. That's the thing. I mean, I'm still waiting for K2. I was hoping, I was hoping that K2 would be climbed before I finished chapter 14, but you know, there's always another edition of the book. 
There you go. You know, that would have been nice to time it, you know, with this this big media release of, uh, you know, climbing, you know, for someone finishing it or a group finishing it. And you say, hey, there's this whole book covering the history. Um, but, yeah. but now that you got to wait, you got to wait to pull the trigger on that. Um, yeah, there'll be an there'll be an epilogue in the second edition, I'm hoping. And that epilogue will be the, the final uh climb of k2 i mean there are a couple teams looking at it for next year hey there you go so yeah hopefully it won't be too long for you to be able to uh essentially close this book out that's exciting so i know the book is out now um where can we where where can folks find it what can they expect when they they read it it's still it's essentially we don't think we covered this but i'll say this in the intro it's stories about these early years of climbing these peaks in winter and what, and what it's been like for the, for the folks involved as well as their families. Um, and you traveled all around the world talking to these people. Um, where, where can they find out more and what can they expect when they read it? Well, the, the book is published in, it has been published in, in two places, uh, simultaneously in North America, it's available through Mountaineers books in Seattle. And so directly, obviously from Mountaineers books, or um, in the UK, it's uh, Vertebrae Books. Uh, again, can be purchased directly, or else at a you know any well maybe not every local bookstore, but you can certainly get the book through your local bookstore, and that's a, a very nice thing to do. Or you can, or you can get it on Amazon right now. I know that it's on Amazon. And what what you could expect um, in this book is. Well, first and foremost, it is, as I said, a history. Uh, it is part of the history of Himalayan climbing and that part which is in winter, um, you know, a, a very difficult way of approaching the highest mountains on earth, but that's what these people chose to do. But I think even more than that, it's a, it is a book uh, uh, full of stories about individual people um, who, who, as I said, are amazing, they're talented, they're strong, they're ambitious, um, they're, um, they form strong uh, friendships and they're loyal to their, par- loyal to their partners. Um, they do incredible things in the mountains and they have a very complex and incredibly uh, supportive uh, group of people around them to help make that happen. And hopefully in the course of reading it, um, you learn more about some of these characters who are unique individuals and uh, they're, they're funny. They're, they're, they're hard not to, to care for in the end. And, and the, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sadness, a lot of tragedy. Mm. Great, great to end on that. <laughs> a lot of sadness and a lot of tragedy, but you know, that, that it's those stories that draw us in. It's these stories of, you know, may, maybe not something we aspire to do, but maybe it, there's characteristics and, uh, you know, there's so much relatability, um, even for folks doing things that we never imagine ourselves doing. I know that I don't enjoy the cold, but I love reading stories about it and about doing these crazy adventures. But Oh man! Well, well Bernadette, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on the Adventure Sports Podcast and talking about this book, talking about uh, your story, and uh, yeah, we're going to be pushing folks to to go check it out. Mountaineers Books, a uh, old old friend of the show, and so we are happy to always push folks to to go check out and buy a book there. That's great. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your interest. I appreciate it. All right, great. Well, great work, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Ann. Bye. Bye.
First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.